that they would still worship carved images. They would still perform blood sacrifices to carved images. They would still perform sacrifices of food and drink and pour out libations and all these things to carved images. And I had such a hard time getting my head around that, coming from where we come from and 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 who we are. I had such a hard time even understanding why would a person in the age that we live in kill an animal and worship of a carved image. It was just really hard to understand. And yet, the culture continues to do that. In fact, we, we've met people that uh, we'd meet them in the village. And there was one man we met in the village, and he now lives in Brooklyn, almost full time. And uh, he was back in the village to build a house for his family. And so he had made a bunch of money working in New York City and had brought the money back to Senegal so he could build a house for his family. And so he was there overseeing the building process for the house. So he was in the village for a little while. But we were talking about his life in Brooklyn, and he was explaining to us how they carry on the animal sacrifice and they carry on the worship of idols in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in a warehouse that they've set aside space in the warehouse for to continue their worship and continue their blood sacrifice of animals to these carved images. And so even living in New York City, even living in the United States, people gather, they continue to gather from this culture to worship little pieces of stone or wood and to buy and sacrifice and kill animals in worship of those pieces of stone and wood. Weird? For us? Sure. Sure. And it continues to this day. So Moses understood that people are drawn to this. He understood it. Uh, the people that he was leading, they, they served a God that was, for the most part, unseen. They served a God that you couldn't hold in your hand. They served a God that you couldn't just carry him with you in your pocket. And so they were serving a God that was different than the gods of the land that they were about to conquer. And so he warned them. And this was his encouragement toward them and warning toward them. He's like, you've you got to understand that you serve the real God. And that even your enemies know that. Because it's so obvious. They may continue to serve the God that they serve. They may continue to serve these pocket gods or these gods that they can carry in their hands. But they have an understanding that the God of Israel is the real God. And that was what Moses was trying to tell them. Is that their rock is not like our rock. He doesn't... But notice when he uses that phrase, their rock is not like our rock. He's not discounting the fact that they see their little gods as their rock. You understand that? I mean, he's saying it's like their rock. Well, that's the best rock they have. And so their rock is their rock, whatever that is, whatever carved image that is, whatever pocket god that is, whatever it is that they're worshiping, that's their god. But their rock is not like our rock at all. And that, and and so not to look and say, well, they just don't have a god. Well, he understood they did. They had what they considered, what they thought was their rock. Moses made sure to draw a contrast with that. Their rock is not like our rock. And he says, even our enemies know that. They do. They do. And and what Moses is saying to them also is that no cause can be found for the defeat of God's people except God. Either it's not his will or whatever would happen is displeasure over something, whatever was the case, but he's the only way they could be defeated as long as they were serving him. And he wanted them to understand that. So think about their rock, these other people, people of Canaan or whoever they were. They're, they're gods. I mean, first off, 
Their gods are not wise, they're not powerful, and they're not gracious. Can you give me one reason why they're not wise, powerful, or gracious? They're made up, right. They're made up. They're not alive. And so, they, they by very nature of being not alive, I mean, a rock is not, you know, a literal rock or a piece of wood is not wise, powerful, or, or gracious. So, if you had a stump sitting somewhere, it, it's not necessarily wise, it's just a stump. You ever heard the expression, dumb as a... Or stump? Yeah, say dumb as a stump. I mean, these are all expressions that we have in our language, idioms that we have in our language to describe how how dumb something could possibly be. Well, how dumb could it be? As dumb as a rock. All right, well, if you carve a graven image out of a rock and you make it into something else to worship, it doesn't mean it's any smarter. All right, it doesn't make it any more gracious. It doesn't make it any more wise or any more powerful. You've put your hand to it in order to, to fashion whatever that thing is into something else. A person has done that. And so they fashion it into something else and they say, okay, well, now this is our God. Well, that's made up. I mean, the artistic value of it may be real. In other words, we've carved something out of the rock or we've carved something out of the wood or the chunk of ice out with a chainsaw or something. We, we've made something out of it. People have made something out of it, but that doesn't in any way, shape, or form make it wise or powerful or gracious. It's still a hunk of wood or a hunk of rock. It's made up. And that is an important aspect of, of what we're looking at is that this is all made up, and yet people will still follow them. And Moses knew that. He knew those people that had just been led through the wilderness. These people that there was a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud all the time. These people that got up and collected manna every morning, except for on Saturdays. But they got up and they collected manna every morning. And they were able to eat supernaturally, crossing a wilderness for 40 years. Living in a wilderness for 40 years. They ate supernaturally every day. Every single day. These people that were experiencing... The supernatural reality of God on a regular basis were prone to follow after something that was completely made up. Yep. Yep. And so in their case, it was a rock or a stump, something that had been carved out of something. That's what they were prone to follow. Well, part of the the issue with this is that Human beings haven't really changed that much. And this is how I finally came to reconcile trying to understand what was going on in West Africa. After I visited there, what was going on in Senegal after I visited there, I had to reconcile that somehow in my mind. And the way that I reconciled that is that people will follow, people will worship, people will base their lives upon, people will allow to influence their thinking and influence their language and influence everything about them, things that are complete and utter fantasy. We do that. Everyone, every culture across the face of the earth will allow complete and utter fantasy to infiltrate their reality. And that's what this is. It is a complete and utter fantasy. That that rock is going to make your harvest good. A complete and utter fantasy that that stump is going to make it so that you're going to get pregnant or whatever it is you're asking for. It's utter fantasy. And this is the issue that we have as human beings. We like to carry our God in our pocket. Or we like to carry our God in our backpack. We like to carry our God in our hand. And we like to make stuff up about whatever it is we have. Is it really, 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 in a sense, puts us in charge of everything? Why do people escape into their fantasy worlds? 
because something overwhelms them in the real world. In some realities, they're overwhelmed and so they escape into their fantasy world. In some reality, this reality, they they are they face a situation where they're uncomfortable, so they escape into their fantasy world. In this reality that we're all in, they, they're put into a situation, most of the time based on something they've done or whatever, their own decisions, but they don't see there's any way out. So what do they do? They escape into some fantasy world. And that fantasy world could be induced by alcohol or drugs or, or whatever, <laughs> or their pet rock or their pet stump or whatever it is. They just want to get out of the reality of what it is. That's why when Moses was talking about these people, he's like, yeah, they, they've got their rocks. Well, what's their rock? Their rock is fantasy. Their rock is made up. Their rock doesn't mean anything, doesn't have any power, doesn't, can't, can't really accomplish anything, can only provide a mental escape. That's it. And even if they all agree on it, and this is what we're doing, and this is the thing that can possibly do this, when it comes right down to it, what did Moses say? Even they know that what they fantasize about, and when would they know this, isn't real. When do people realize what they're fantasizing about, fantasizing about isn't real? Tell me. How's it happen? Right. And they Yeah, and so it doesn't happen and so they can make up a reason why not, but it just doesn't happen. Or let's say that they ask their gods that put it in context of where we are. Let's say they ask their God and they say, Okay, well, they're a little rock, okay, stump stumpy lord or or you know, whatever. Uh we want to defeat the Israelites. But the Israelites come into town and they just they, they march around their city and then they blow a trumpet and all the walls fall down and they rush in and kill all the soldiers and everybody. Right? So what just happened? You realize that, okay, well, our little fantasy shattered. Why? Because we just got overrun in a supernatural way by the God of Israel. Okay, no denying it. Walls fell down in the strongest city in our country, the strongest city on this side of wherever we know, and they blew a trumpet, they marched around it, they screamed, and all the walls fell down, and they just rushed in, and they were victorious. How do you deny that? You don't, because it's real. They just took your stuff. They just killed your brother. All right? Because that's reality. That's reality. You know, there comes a point in every person's life, it's like, well, you know, like Uncle Rico... You know, you think about Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. That guy's still living in, what, 1982? Why? Because he was going to be a football star. Well, he wasn't even playing in the game. Well, if he'd have put me in at quarterback, man, we'd have won the state champion. Whatever he was saying. Craziness. He didn't put him in. The guy's, what, 30-something years old, 40-something years old in the movie? What's he trying to buy online? You remember? Time machine. Why? Because he knows... He can't do anything about it now, so what's he going to do? He's going to travel back in time, right? And he's going he's gonna to be different. Things are going to be different this time. Yeah, that's crazy, all right? That's crazy right there. That's fantasy. Yeah, well, he could throw a stake, but I don't know if he could throw a football a quarter mile or over that mountain over there. I don't know about that. But he could throw a stake. I mean, I'll give him that. So he orders the time machine, hooks it up to something, and then turns it on and nothing. He didn't go back in time. He just walked kind of funny. That was it. Yeah. So at some point, unless Uncle Rico's going to live in insanity his whole life, he's going to come to the conclusion that Fantasy is over, and reality is reality. He's going to join the rest of us. Now, I know he's a fictional character, but I was just picking somebody so I wouldn't pick on anybody. All right? Everybody, I can pick on Uncle Rico. He doesn't really exist. All right? But, you know, all of us have certain things like this. And some of us retreat into the fantasy world a lot more than others. It justifies whatever we wanted to justify. 
we're, we're a little god in that world. We just make it up. When you're making stuff up, I mean, you're the little god of that world, man. It's like being a writer. You're going to write something. All right? That's your book, right? Who creates that world? The writer does. Who creates the characters in that world? The writer does. Who creates the action in the that takes place there? The writer does. Who creates the rules that take place in that world? The writer does. It's like being your own little god. i got nothing against writing, by the way. But I'm just saying that if, we, if we're living within that in our own lives, and we're defining life that way, there's something really wrong with that. And so the same principle that drives that, drives the, a people who know the living God into this fantasy world of the Canaanites, to, to have the God they carry in their hand or in their pocket. Because you know what? Because, man, they just want to do what they want to do. And, and that's not how we serve our God. It's not about what we want to do. It's about what He's doing. It's not about what we like or we don't like. It's what He has for us. It's not about what we would have chosen because we may not have chosen that thing. It's about what He chooses for us. Because He's God and He's big and He's, He's loving and He's huge and He cares and He wants the best and all of these things. All those things are true. That's who He is. And that's the God that we serve. But there's a deception that is common to man. A deception that started in the Garden of Eden. A deception that the devil planted into every single one of us that we know better. And we can do it better. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And so these people, Moses knew them. He's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't get in with these people. Don't get in with their gods. Don't get in with their culture. Don't get in with the rest of that. You serve a God that's bigger, better, more awesome than anything they'll ever know. And they even know it because they see it and they've experienced it and they know what it is, the God that you serve. They know. Even they know. So don't give yourself over to the deception. Don't give yourself over to the fantasy. So we think about our rock. Our rock, not their rock, our rock. History proves he's above all gods. History proves he's above all gods. And that we can trust him. He's proven himself faithful. He proves that he loves us. He proves that he cares for us. He proves that he's looking out for us. He proves that He provides for us. So I want you to think of God in a, a few different ways. Think of our rock in a few different ways. We're going to look up some verses here. So help me out looking these up. The first is He's a foundation. He's a foundation. So somebody look at Matthew 7.24. Matthew 7:24 God is a foundation our rock is a foundation Okay so he's like a wise man who built his home on the rock Now what was the condition to understand that know that and to enter into that kind of understanding What was the condition that Jesus gave you have to hear his words, but you have to do them. And so the condition is hearing and doing. That's the condition of actually entering into this place where we're building our house on a strong foundation on the rock. And so understanding that is understanding the very basis of who we are as the disciples of Jesus. That we hear him... And then we do what he says. Now, I know that's really simple. 
And I know that we talk about this. I know this is a, a central theme of our discipleship here at our church. I know that. I know that every person that's gone through any level of discipleship training at our church has heard those words here and do over and over again. You've read them, you've heard them, and you know it's just a simple foundational truth of what it is to serve Jesus. It just is. And Jesus makes that point here yet again by saying that if you hear his words and you do them, you can't separate those things. They don't work together apart from each other like that. If you hear his words and you do these things, then you're like a man who has built his house, a wise man who has built his house on a rock. Now, what's the advantage of building your house on a rock? What's that? It's solid. Why do you want a solid house? Hmm? It doesn't fall down. So... What are the conditions that, in those verses, what are the conditions that may come your way that would cause your house to fall down? What are some things? Storms, right? So it could be windy, it could be rainy, it could be, you know, the snow blowing on it, or whatever it would be, okay? But there's conditions of life that come against the house that you're trying to build. You can, you, we never reach a point where it's like, oh, I'm going to build my house. And I'm going to put effort into it. I'm going to put uh, resources into it, materials. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to work. I'm going to put my hand to it. Follow me. And I'm going to do what I need to do in order to build that house. Well, you build that house, and as soon as you build it, what happens? Well, the wind comes, the rain comes. Whatever happens, happens. And the house falls down. Well, you can honestly say... I did my part, except for one thing. Except for one thing. There's one key thing that you didn't do. What was that? No foundation is right. You didn't hear and do. So you could have built the nicest house on the block. All right? Maybe it's the prettiest house on the block. Maybe it's the biggest house on the block. Maybe it's something that, that you put a lot of time and effort into. You had somebody come in and design it. You used the best paint. It's pretty. It's got all the nice features in it. I mean, you just really sprung for the nice features, okay? Best windows, whatever you want to put in it. We're going to be nice and warm this winter. we got the best windows, fully insulated, whatever it is. You get done, the wind comes and knocks it down. The flood comes and, and, and takes it away. The river rises and floods it out. And it just falls down. Now, you can say, if you want, in your own heart or your own spirit, you can say, well, I did everything. And I put so much resource into this. I put so many things into this. I, I, I mean, I did everything that was required to, to make this a nice place. And you should have seen it. I mean, did you see it? It was beautiful. And it was big. And it was, it was, it was just gorgeous. I did all this myself. And I put all this together. But when it comes right down to it, if you didn't build it on a foundation, it's not going to stand. And it could stand for a while until the wind comes. It could stand for a while until the rain comes or the floods come or whatever's coming its way. It could stand for a while, but there will come a day and there will come a time that if it's not built on the appropriate foundation, it's going to fall down. And that's just the way it is. The foundation is hearing and doing. That's where you start. And if you're hearing and doing, and you'll start there, you can actually build something. But until then, it doesn't matter. You can spend as much money as you want. You can put out as much effort as you want. You can make things as pretty as you want. You can be proud of it as much as you want. But if it's not built on a foundation of hearing and doing, it's eventually going to fall down. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so our God, our rock, isn't like other rocks. And other people have their own little rock, whatever, they got it, but our rock isn't like that. 
Our rock is a solid foundation on which we can build. Second thing that he is, he's a refuge. Our rock is a refuge. Go look at a couple of verses. Uh, Psalm 94, 22. Psalm 94, 22. Somebody else wants to look up 2 Samuel 22, 3. Psalm 94, 2 Samuel 22, 3. For the Lord has become my fortress, and my God, the rock, is whom I take refuge. All right. Uh, you read that? It talks about who our rock is. He's a fortress. A fortress in whom we can take refuge. And we do take refuge in Him. We can be safe. Our enemies come against us. We got somewhere to go. We got somewhere to be. Not just a, a little house, but a fortress. Not just a, a a little flimsy thing where we're hiding. We're not hiding. We're we're given a place to go, a fortress that we can go into. That's our rock. That's who he is. We don't have to live in fear. We don't. People may choose to. People may seem to want to. But we don't have to. It's almost a sport these days to live in fear. It's completely shocking. How many people would run across that just choose to live in fear? And it is. It's like, it's like well, what do you mean? It's like they crave it. They will watch things that will make them afraid. They will listen to things that will make them afraid. They listen to things that will make them afraid. It's become an industry to scare people. And I'm not talking about horror movies. I'm talking about what used to be the news. Or what used to be the, the, the ten minutes of weather. Or what used to be whatever it is. It's a new industry just to scare people. When you walk into a mall when a weather alert goes off. That's all you can hear. Beep, 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 beep. Everybody's phone's going off. They can scare us all at once. The worst snowstorm ever is coming our way. Better run. Like we've never had a snowstorm before. Yeah? Really? Sure we have. Oh, bitter cold coming our way. Yeah, it's February. That's what happens. Or January is what happens. Whatever. But you listen to it enough. Anxiety. Anxiety. And what, if it, what do we do? We keep listening to it. Keep watching it. Oh, it's anxiety. We don't have to live like that. Our God is a rock. That's a fortress that we find refuge in. Safety. Peace. He offers that. Why live in anxiety? Why live in fear all the time? Why? Stop making that your sport. Stop it. I mean, they're starting up pickleball at the YMCA. Make that your sport. You might like it. It's better than fear or anxiety. Second Samuel twenty-two, three. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. All right. Did you hear all those words? They all mean something. Every one of them means stuff. They have meaning. All right? So he's talking about he's a refuge. He's his rock. You know, he could take refuge in him. The horn of my salvation. I mean, you start looking at all the things he says there. We don't have to be afraid. He takes care of a bunch of things in that one verse. He talks about our physical well-being. He talks about our emotional well-being. And he talks about our spiritual well-being. He got the whole thing in the one verse. And so he's talking about that, and he's saying that, and he's letting us know, you don't have to live this way. You don't. 
You don't have to live in that kind of fear. You don't have to live in that kind of emotional roller coaster. He offers something better. I'm afraid emotionally. He's got you. I'm afraid spiritually. He's got you. I'm afraid physically. He's got you. He's got you, all right? That's who he is. He's our rock. Our rock's not like other rocks. Well, people fail me. Yeah, well, guess you shouldn't have made that your rock. People fail all the time. Another area that our rock is not like another rock. So we got a foundation, build. That's where you start. That's your foundation. Here and do. Your refuge. He's our refuge. He's our rock. He's our rock. He's a huge fortress. He provides for us body, soul, and spirit. But he's also refreshing. He's our refreshment. And so we've got a good foundation. We've got a great refuge. And now he refreshes us. Somebody look at Exodus Exodus 17, and I'm going to say 6. I can't really read it. Let's try that one. Exodus 17, 6, and then Psalm 114, 8. So literally, what did the rock provide? At Horeb. Water, which you're in the middle of the desert. What's water for you? Good refreshment, all right? That's, that's what he is. That's who he is. And that's understanding that our God, uh, rocks do not generally produce water when you strike them with a wooden staff. Okay? That's not a normal thing. That's a miracle. It's what we call, what we call in the God business a miracle. All right? Moses put the staff out, hit the rock, water came out. All right. So that's refreshment. And that's what he's talking about. That's this idea that we have a rock. Our rock's not like other rocks. You go all through Canaan trying to find a rock you can hit with a, a wooden staff and water comes out of it. You're not going to find one. Why? Because our rock is different than their rock. That's why. He's just different. And so he provides and he refreshes and he gives. And you can't just look at that water as just being, oh, well, he was just meeting a particular need. Well, it was a need, but it was more than that. Because he didn't just provide enough for everybody to survive on. He let it just pour out. Now, I know I've told this story before, but I had the opportunity way, way back, not quite in the day, but it was pretty far back, where I traveled in the Sahara Desert. Some of you traveled with me. And we were going across Mauritania in a pickup truck. And Mauritania is just desert. And at that time, it was more desert. There's more green there than there ever was, well, at least within our lifetime. And we've been in the desert for almost two weeks. And so there was no water, really. We had enough water to live on. To we just get water wherever we could, wherever we find a well, wherever we could find water, and we had big five-gallon bladders that would fill up with the water, and we'd treat it, and we had all these ways of of carrying water on the truck with us, but it was just really survival, is what we were doing, because we were just going place to place. Uh, we put, I think, we went 500 miles into the desert, so, uh, and we were we had a Toreg that was our guide. He was driving the truck for us. And he knew people all, all the way through. He just knew people. And so we'd stop people's homes and eat. They'd feed us. We'd pay them. And we slept in tents at night. And so toward the end of the trip, we came, we came up through the desert one way. We, we were somewhere around 50 miles from Timbuktu and Mali. And we got to the northern, northeastern part where we were. Turned around, came back down, around and through, and then came back up the other side. And as we came up the other side, uh, we were coming back toward where we started, Nuakshot, and there was an oasis, like a real honest-to-God oasis. And so the driver knew that was there, so he'd stop there, and we just got out of that truck. Now, it was so dirty, uh, you know, because of the desert sand. 
I mean, I had short hair. It wasn't quite this short, but it was short enough. I just twisted it. So I had, like, little twists all in my hair because it was so greasy and dirty because there's no showering. And I, whatever, I was shaving with a knife. And it was just crazy. So we get to this oasis, and, and there's trees, like palm trees and everything, and there's just water everywhere. There's, there's dates growing on the trees, and you can just pick them yourself and eat them. And they had buckets of dates just sitting around, and they had blankets on the ground that you could sit on and just sit in the cool of the day, and the cool of the day in the middle of the desert. Or they had one part that they had taken the, the pool of water, the well of water, and they had built the cement uh, receptacle that the water would flow into, and it would... It was, you know, it was probably about this high, and it was fairly large, and then it would flow over the top of that, and then down and be a stream through the oasis. It wasn't anything commercial. It's just something they had built. And I can remember getting up into that thing, uh, that little cement thing they invited us to. I wasn't being weird or anything. That they said we could do it, and I just, I just immersed myself in that water. And that'd been, that'd been the most water we had seen for two weeks. And I just immersed myself in it and just sat under the water and just let it permeate my hair and my my skin and just, you know, just, wow. And, and how that felt. Because that wasn't just meeting the need, you know, of enough water to drink. We were already doing that. This was something more than that. This was uh, almost, and I, it was almost luxurious. I mean, to, to just submerge myself in water and to lay on a blanket and eat dates. And they made a, they made a huge feast for us of lamb. They, they let me pick out the lamb, and, and they cooked up the lamb for us. We had a huge feast of couscous and lamb and dates and all this stuff. It was refreshing. It wasn't surviving. It was refreshing. And so the next day, we got back on that truck, man, and headed back toward the walk shop. But that was a whole new day, all right? That wasn't the same old day that was yesterday. And we got back, and everything was, it was awesome. But that's what I mean by more than just, you know, meeting the need. We serve a God who refreshes us who goes beyond just meeting the need. You know, when he talks about life and what he offers to us, it's not just survival, it's abundance. That's what he wants for us. And if you want to live in that place of just survival, well, he fully allows you to do that. You can, but he's got more for you. If you just want to, to hang out just getting by, he'll allow you to hang out just getting by, but he's got so much more for you in the life that you have. So I look at Psalm 114.8. Right? Who does that? Our God does that. Alright? And every time I read that verse... I think of that moment in the desert. Who turns a desert into a spring of water, into a pool? Our God does that. Our God does that where it's just hot and miserable and terrible and and He can provide out of nowhere a spring, a pool, a refreshment that no one else can provide. And that's who He is. You know, I look for that. It's not, I don't just accept that as a matter of, okay, yeah, I believe he said that. I don't accept it as just that. I really believe it. And I really look for it. And I really wait for it. And anybody that has traveled with me within the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, those moments come. In the midst of hardship, moments come. And they come in all kinds of different forms. They just do. And I look for them. 
And so I want to encourage you to look for those moments of refreshment in the midst of your labor, in the midst of your toil, to look for those times. i got another verse for you, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, can I read verses 1, 2, 3, and 4? And if that's not correct, then it's probably 2 Corinthians. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Yes. All right. So what this verse does is it draws us all to Jesus. Our rock is not like their rock. Our rock is Jesus. And that's what he brings out in 1 Corinthians 10 is that this is our rock. So what does he provide? Spiritual food. He provides spiritual drink. He, he provides for us in every way as far as body, soul, and spirit for our needs. That's who he is. That is our rock. He is our rock. And it's important that we have something that draws us together, that brings us down to an understanding of who our rock is, that brings us down to an understanding of what that actually means for our lives. Because Jesus is the center of our faith. And as the center of our faith, He's the one that we look to to understand who God is, to understand who the Father is, to understand that what it means to serve Him. As the Holy Spirit reveals more and more and more and more about Jesus, we're learning more and more and more and more about who God is in our daily lives. That's part of the point. And so, if you get one thing out of tonight, maybe you got something, you said, oh, well, I'll start, I'm going to start looking for that refreshment then. Maybe that stuck with you. Good. That's one thing more that you can learn about the God that we serve, the God that loves you, and the God that wants to provide for you. That's one more great thing that you learn about the rock that is not like other people's rocks. Something that means something for your life. Something that can be applied to your daily work, your daily toil, your daily life that you live. To look for that moment and that refreshment that only God can bring. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks. Inconveniently, our rock became a human being at a point in history and was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, who understands what it is to live the life that we live and understands what it is to, to go about the work that we go about. He gets it. And he knows. And He knows how to refresh us. He understands that too. He's uniquely qualified to take care of us. And so, if it comes down to it, let's bring it down to this. Rock versus rock. All right, rock versus rock. Well, what's left to ponder? Okay? Go ahead and do it. If your Bible doesn't have it, the one rock, their rock has a small R. Our rock has a big R. Go ahead, change it. All right? Because that's the fact. There's nothing left to ponder. The votes are in. Their rock is not like our rock. Their rock has a small r. Our rock has a big r. And he's proven himself faithful. Right? He's proven himself to be the God who cares and who loves and who takes care of his people. So, so there's nothing else. Our enemies are judges of that. And you can take this as... They, he, Moses is talking about physical enemies. You take it to a spiritual enemy. Our spiritual enemy, the devil, believes and trembles when it comes to Jesus. He knows. He knows. He, has, he doesn't have any doubt about it. He's been walking in the presence of God for millennia. He knows who Jesus is. He understands the situation. 
which speaks to the desperation that he works under. Because he understands that his defeat is certain. He gets it. And so even our spiritual enemies themselves judge this. They've all been defeated. At the resurrection of Jesus, it was game over. Now we're learning what it means to live in that victory. We're learning what that looks like in our lives. We're learning what it means to actually take hold of a kingdom understanding of the universe that we live in. That's what we're doing. And the devil may pick off one or two people here or there. He may. It's not like we haven't been warned about it. It's not like people haven't said, hey, you know, we serve a real God who loves you and cares for you, wants the best for you. Our rock is not like their rock, and there's some people that are going to go after that crap even so they know it. Because they want to live in their own fantasy, and they want to make up their own thing, and they want to do their own thing. And they'll go and they'll do that. But ultimate victory is done. We're living it out. We are living it out. And God gives us an opportunity to invite other people into it. As the, as the verse ends up that we're looking at tonight in Deuteronomy 32:31, as it all ends up, it says this. My version said, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Every person's experience shows him or her that this is true. And Moses is encouraging and at the same time warning the people. And that's what he's saying. Hold on to God. Hold on to God. I'm always shocked at how people can be influenced by the people around them. Shocked. And one thing that I've seen over the years that, that probably shocks me the most is that that type of a dynamic between males and females. I've seen people walk away from a solid call on their life because they meet Mr. Wonderful. God may have called them. They may have already started their training. They know this is God. They've been vetted with it. They're they sure it's God. They know that they heard from the Holy Spirit, and that's it. And Mr. Wonderful comes along, and guess what? Did God really say? The oldest lie in the book. Whatever. And then they go off and do whatever they're going to do. Even with me in, in the midst of counseling, you will never fulfill your call if you do this. You understand that, right? No, no, we're definitely going. Okay. They never go. And it's not just, and I'm not just talking female to male or male to female. It's just a unique, weird influence that we as human beings, I mean, we have a drive in us to get together. All right? We have a drive to procreate. We have a drive for relationship. I get that. But... It seems like we, some people, and I don't want to say we because it's not true of everybody, but some people give up everything, everything, in order to grab hold of that. And those people that Moses was speaking to, they're no different. You think, man, thousands of years ago, I wonder what they were like. You know what they were like? You and me. That's what they were like. They're people. And so when they started getting together with the women in Canaan, guess what happened? Or the, or the women started getting with, together with the men of Canaan, guess what began to happen? They began to worship the pocket gods. And they began to worship the gods that they could hold in their hand. Because they made a decision they were going to do what they wanted to do. And they were led by their base desires to go and do it. And they became idolaters. 
what happened. And so understand that that Moses, and the same word of Moses, same word of Jesus, the same word that comes to us is hold on to God. Hold on to Him. Cleave to Him. Because we are easily distracted, we are easily influenced, and we are easily led astray if we don't cleave to God. And so I encourage you toward that. There's a whole world he's teaching us, a whole kingdom he wants us to learn to live in, a whole life that he has for us. It's just awesome. I mean, he, he's such a, a great foundation. He's such a great refuge. He He's a refreshment to his people. And he wants us to learn to live in all of those things. He offers it. He pours it out. And what it comes down to is we'll make our decisions. I know you don't like to think of it this way, and it's hard for us to think of it this way, but their rock isn't like our rock. And we trade the living God for a piece of stone or wood. Yeah. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I just want to... Pray for us that you would assist us and help us to to really just cleave to you, to hold on to you, to not let go. Because I thank you for each of the lives that are represented here. I thank you, God, that um, yeah, they're they're yours. They're yours as long as they'll receive that, as long as they choose to be. And I thank you that you're a firm foundation. I thank you that you're able to keep us safe. I thank you that you are refreshing and a refreshment to your people. Thanks. I thank you that you offer us life and that more abundantly. I thank you that you have a reality for us to live in that's so much better than anything we could ever make up. Thanks. I just pray that we take heed tonight. And I pray that we'd hold on to you. Jesus, thanks for being our rock. Thanks for meeting our needs, body, body, soul, and spirit. Thanks. Thanks for wanting the best for us. Thanks for providing the best for us. Thanks for looking out for us. And thanks for the greatest love we'll ever know. For pouring out that great love, that greatest love on us. I pray that we can receive of you tonight. We give you honor. We give you blessing. And we give you praise. Just take a moment right now before I say uh, the amen here. Just take a moment and something, just pick one thing that God spoke to you tonight. One thing. And just put it right into your active thought. Stick it right in there. Thanks, God. Yeah, we honor you, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree with saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters... You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of Chaplaincy of Syracuse University, 
You see us continuously gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah. 